Hello and welcome to episode number 175 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we hear from Jan Marcus Vermel, doctoral student at the University of Constance and the author of a very interesting article titled Pathos and Discipline, Islamist Masculinity in Turkey, 1950-2000, in the journal Zeithistorisch Forschungen, or Studies in Contemporary History. He's actually appeared on the podcast before, back in November 2020, when he discussed the intellectual development of political Islam in Turkey. I wanted to get him back on because this latest piece he's written really digs deep into some fascinating areas on that subject about how Islamism in Turkey weaponized ideas of virility, manliness and strength to mobilize against what it saw as the emasculating forces of secularism and westernization, particularly in the second half of the 20th century. We talk about the origins of those political trends many decades ago, as well as where the figure of President Erdogan fits into the framework later in the episode. But before we get started, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And you can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Jan Marcus Vommel. I started by asking him what triggered him to start digging deeper into the particular aspect of political Islam in Turkey that he looks at in this latest article. In my research, I was always trying to understand Islamism like from an inside point of view, like from the individual Islamists themselves and uh, stuff they wrote and stuff they did. And then continuing from there, studying the impact Islamism had on personalities and everyday life and things that are very much related to yeah lifestyles, things like dressing in a particular way, living a family, family life in a particular way, or even things that seem yeah probably a bit marginal or something like that, but actually quite important, I think. Think like decorating one's home. Islamism really had this immense impact on everyday life and personalities and lifestyles, basically leaving no stone unturned. And important, 
and very obvious aspect of Islamism, of course, moving into this personal sphere is regulating the relationship between the sexes. Research on Islamism obviously tackled this question, but always from a female perspective. There's always a part missing. It's a kind of implicit understanding that Islamism itself always, almost in an obsessive way, talks about women and how to regulate women's bodies and uh, how women live their life and so on. But it does less so about man. But then on the other hand, uh, we can see that the movement itself is extremely male-dominated. So that was how I came up with this idea to research also the male dimension, because I thought this is always a missing link in the arguments that other research produced. And with this, I tried then to develop a new understanding how Islamism produced this extreme commitment and this organizational stamina, really, that it showed over the years it was active in Turkish history. Now, you go really deeply into the kind of worldview that we're talking about here. You write at one point, during the second half of the 20th century, Turkish Islamists framed the westernizing reforms in their country as an emasculating process. For its result, in their view, was a weak and passive individual in a cultural and political climate that subordinated itself in the face of the West. It was up to a reformed and strengthened Muslim male subject to reverse all this, regain historical agency and thus contribute to a resurgence of the Muslim Turkish nation and Islamic civilization. Offering a new concept of manhood was thus fundamental to Islamism. So dig into this for us, really. What aspects of masculinity were important in Islamism and when did these ideas and themes start to emerge in uh, the material that you looked at? Yes, I mean, once you dig into the sources, notions about masculinity really pop up pretty much everywhere. But I tried to gain a more proper understanding by grouping those aspects. One aspect is, of course, a very important talking point for uh, for Turkish Islamism. That's the talk of a new youth and a new generation that would then contribute to the resurgence of the Muslim world or the Turkish Muslim nation, or even in a broader frame, Muslim civilization. And if you look a bit closer, I mean, of course, Turkish is a is a language that's not always clear about which gender we are actually talking about right now. But if we're looking a bit closer, then it becomes pretty much obvious that the Islamist thinkers talking about this new youth and the new generation actually had males in mind, yeah, a new male generation, a new male youth, a male agent that they want to reactivate. And then the second point is a lot of different aspects in Islamist political practice and also everyday uh, life practice that's not always directly involved with politics, things like dress or facial hair. And then a third point, which is also very important, and I think analytically it's one of my favorite aspects of the article, is the masculine Islamist habitus. So this is about behavior, ways to speak, and also things like bodily bearing and discipline. Discipline is... Uh, itself is a factor that becomes involved in Turkish Islamism a bit later, like in the 1970s with the influx 
of transnational Islamist thought, whereas the earlier, the original Turkish Islamist thinkers, for example, a prominent example is uh, Najib Fasakusakurek. He was a person that could, as an Islamist, could smoke and gamble. And uh, later on, it was out of the question that something like this would be possible for an Islamist male, because you would have to affirm the Islamist notion of uh, personal behavioral discipline. And there's this division that you identify between passivity and activeness. This way of thinking, this way of looking at the world, it saw itself as being very active and pursuing the particular ideal against what it perceived as the passivity of sort of mimicry that they saw secularism and westernization as sort of inculcating in people. So, so you write that. The Islamist males ought to be active in political, economic and cultural pursuits, seeking to reverse the hegemony of the West. With this, they implicitly coded passivity as an emasculating feminine stance. A passive and disoriented personality, in the Islamist view, was a result of blind cultural mimicry, inferiority complexes and a subservient self-positioning against the West that was associated with the subject created by Westernization and secular nationalism. Islamist masculinity offered an escape from Islamism's own construction of fragile and emasculated secularist masculinity and from the political weakness Islamists describe to it. So there you, you're describing this dis division between passivity and activity. And also associated with that, I suppose, is this idea of being both a victim and being strong at the same time. It's kind of a weird paradox that they're getting at there. Could you just dig a bit deeper into this idea of the way that they viewed or possibly still view secularism and westernization as being basically a passive stance, whereas they saw it, their role as being to be active and striving in response to this? Yeah, this is a very crucial notion, I think very fundamental to not just Turkish Islamism, actually, but to all kinds of Islamist movements, uh, really all over the, the Muslim world. Yeah, the argument really goes like this in the way I describe it in the article, that secularization and westernization would be leaving behind people who are devoid of character and identity, and then because of that are kind of bound to passivity. This notion then is very closely intermingled with a kind of the Islamist view that the Muslim world, and in this case Turkey especially, has kind of lost lost its political prowess in face of the West and bec has become a kind of extension of the West without an own character and without an own political might and an own political profile. And yeah, what they want to change then is exactly that by activating this new male masculine Islamist ideal subject. They view it as a kind of duty of this self-fashioned as oppressed minority of upright Muslim men that would then turn this around. So there's always this duality between striving for power and feeling emasculated, oppressed, downtrodden. Yeah, I think from this notion, Turkish Islamism also derives a kind of claim for power. 
And all this is wrapped up in this other idea of authentic selfhood, you know, the real core of oneself that has been basically submerged in decades of secularism. And the project of Islamism is to peel back all those fake layers that have covered up the authentic self and to return to that central core and therefore renew Islamic civilization, essentially. And this Islamist ideal that masculine strength could be regained by connecting or reconnecting with faith and the authentic selfhood, which had been apprehended in the process of westernization and secularization. That's another key point that you dig away at in the article. In the in the article, you also cite numerous examples of these tropes in various forms in popular culture, in political campaigning, in literature, speeches, political propaganda, uh, visual material. Could you just give us a couple of examples that particularly stand out for you as illustrating some of these themes? Yeah, about uh, political political life. The coalition of the Milli Gurush movement with the Republican People's Party in the mid-1970s was pretty interesting. And uh, several uh, really striking examples emerged from that coalition, which didn't last very long. Um, this, was, this was one of the, the many coalitions of the 1970s, and this one was between almost polar opposites, the Milli Garush uh, exactly. sort of movement at the time, and the, obviously the CHP uh, that is now obviously the main opposition in Turkey today. Yes, exactly. Like ideologically speaking, polar opposite. But then you see where the where the Islamists really put their weight in to move something politically. And one of those cases was a statue, a nude statue that uh, symbolized the beauty of Istanbul. It was called Güzel Istanbul. And then uh, the Islamist government ministers had this removed. Uh, yeah, that was in I Istanbul, located in Karakoy, was it? It was located in Karakoy, and then when the Islamist government ministers had it removed first to Karakoy, and uh, today I think it's hidden somewhere in a corner of uh, Yildiz Park in Besiktas. So I think this really illustrates this Islamist notion of a kind of uh, protector masculinity or a kind of moral guardianship over female sexualities and displays of uh, female sexualities. Another case is in point, same period is constant talk about obscene press and how to move against those uh, obscene press releases. Uh, yeah, Erbakan was also claiming that he managed to have the skirts of uh, Turkish Airlines flight attendants have it longer for about 10 centimeters or something like that. So this is from the political sphere. And yeah, in popular culture and uh, the inner culture, the Islamist movement produced I think there's loads and loads of examples. I featured a handful of them in, in the article. And uh, one of the most characteristic or the most stereotypical, one might say, are the characters in, in the so-called salvation novels. Very cliched, very stereotypical characters, of course, but useful for this analysis because they really embody these Islamist notions in a real ideal, typical way. One of those uh, characters is uh, from a novel which was also turned into a movie, very famous, 
called Huzursukka, and the character is named Bilal. He's the main male character, and he really embodies this notion that I call assertive calmness. So it's a kind of a character that comes to the fore with a kind of masculine gravitas and a slow, self-assured speech. In his way, he's interacting with the woman in the novel. It's like really the man is explaining the world and how the world works and how women should behave in them according to an idealized uh, Islamic character. And of course, later on, inner culture of the Islamist movement becomes a bit more complex itself. But this is useful to understand the ideal, idealized uh, types at first. And you also talk about the vilification, really, of any expression of homoeroticism and homosexuality. And you also note the very strong irony here. So you say that Turkish Islamists resembled their contemporaries of all social, cultural and political backgrounds much more than the Ottoman forefathers they glorified. In Ottoman Islamic culture, Sufis exalted homoeroticism in treaties and poetry. Ottoman Islamic jurisprudence damned homosexuality but rarely saw fit for punishment. In practice, Ottomans for the most part did not concern themselves with the topic too much and adhered to a laissez-faire approach to homosexual practices. It was only during the Ottoman modernization period Period, that sexuality moved to the center of attention and the old paradigm was gradually abandoned in favor of a strict heteronormativity with little tolerance for the transgression of boundaries. Heteronormativity thus became an Islamist obsession that had few roots in the authentic Islamic culture that they claimed to represent. Instead, it originated from 19th century Ottoman appropriation of Western discourses on deviant sexualities and orientalist stereotypes of the Muslim world as an abode of the homosexual. So fascinating irony there and obviously one that still, I mean, that point still often actually gets made today as we're seeing this uh, ramping up of anti-LGBT rhetoric and indeed action from the government. In response, a lot of people or a few people at least note this irony. They say, you know, actually, when you look at the uh, the Ottoman heritage, there was actually a fair amount more tolerance or rather a broader scope, let's say, for alternative uh, sexualities and you know this is kind of being jettisoned somewhat by this very rigid current discourse so this is definitely uh, identifiable in you know the period that you were looking at and it's still true today i think yeah certainly a kind of ironic stance that those claiming the ottoman heritage in some, such an empathetic way are kind of boiling it down to kind of simplistic and very selective stereotypical notions and yeah of course this also shows how politicized this uh, islamist or not just islamist possibly also more the turkish conservative right-wing fantasy of ottoman life i mean today we have great research on this topic that we might refer to for a kind of deeper look for example, by Dror Zeevi or Eski Sadetash, who both produced brilliant works on this and uh, really have showed that Ottoman society worked in completely different ways in this regard and uh, really did not care about today's homophobia or heteronormative stances that are now kind of projected into the past by, by today's uh, Islamists. And another point that you make in the piece is that this 
exaltation of masculinity was not something exclusive, of course, to Islamism. It was really shared across ideologies and political currents in 20th century Turkey. You know, masculine Im- uh, images were ubiquitous elements, really, of political culture. You know, it was there in the um, Republican Turkish modernization efforts that really put men in the role as, of these active agents of modernization, and women really as the kind of supporting role of symbols, really, more than anything. And also, it was there in the leftist groups of the 60s and 70s, which were almost paying lip service to, to things like women's rights, but they were very heavily masculine in, in many senses, and they were full of very macho symbols and leaders who embodied all these ideals. So in that framing, you know, arguably it's not really surprising that Islamism at the time also got its share of this broader theme. Uh, yes, obviously, like in the broader frame of very masculinist political culture, it's not really possible to imagine Islamism or really any political current in Turkey without very important masculinist notions or yeah, different aspects how to form their own ideal model of masculinity. But yeah, we can say like the Republican secular ideal being a kind of modern housewife and the male part, which would still dominate the public sphere and politics. But on the other hand, still gender equality being a part of the modernization paradigm here. This aspect of the modernization paradigm, which also allows uh, for possible future opening. Then we have uh, groups like the far left, of course, which then glorify self-sacrifice for the revolutionary cause Or, for example, the Grave Wolves, the Alternationalists, which, of course, uh, kind of steely and masculinity put forth by those groups and identifying with kind of paramilitary groups and a kind of, as a kind of masculinity as an extension, extension of the state. And yeah. And they don't even like to wear shorts anymore. So I've seen a debate recently about, uh, you know, between various far right nationalists online, and they were basically debating whether it was right to wear shorts, which is a pretty funny modern um, example of this. Yeah, I I never came across debates on shorts by alternationalists. But of course, for the Islamists, that would be an important point to have male dress that should be modest as well. So wear long trousers. But of course, here uh, there's a caveat, and that is that political identification does not always directly translates into practice. And of course, there are other factors like a differentiation between urban and rural settings or different local communities within Turkey. So all of these uh, we have to factor in into our research. The title of the piece refers to pathos and discipline, and that pathos refers to the importance of emotionalism, which you describe as one of the most palpable features of Turkish Islamism's inner culture. And this ranged from a general emotive style of discourse and politics to public displays of emotion. And this ubiquitous presence of poetry in this political style used and referred to by political figures and activists And you describe it in the piece, emotionalism as being this antidote to positivist, rationalist worldviews of secularism. And it may surprise people to hear that because, you know, emotionalism, it seems to contradict the idea of masculinity. So how does that work? How does that fit into the, the thesis that you're putting forward? Yeah, in Turkish Islamism, we can really witness this prominent role of emotion. And it's important in poetry, which has a very crucial role in the Islamist uh, movement culture in kind of 
emotive speech and also in yeah public tears like uh, islamist politicians were allowed to shed public tears without being emasculated yeah keeping their authentic islamist manhood while also crying publicly which was a unique feature pretty much of the islamist movement which you cannot observe uh, in other political currents uh, so emotion really as a way to access this hidden or this buried authentic self which was buried under alienation westernization and the secularism and so on so kind of to to reaccess this authentic self and then by bringing it to the fore again to reconstruct authentic turkish muslim culture turkish muslim nation or even uh, muslim civilization so in this broader framing pathos is Uh, really a form to be more authentic actually so in 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 this uh, construction within the islamist movement uh, it's not contradictory at all but uh, rather it's uh, supporting these notions of uh, cultural authenticity i think the most unique and special aspect and often people are surprised by that too is this prominent role of uh, poetry islamist uh, theorizations of uh, poetry as kind of protecting the metaphysical protecting the great the great beyond the great unknown or to maintain uh, a connection with it yeah which was basically taken away for the islamists in the islamist mindset taken away by uh, uh, rationalism and positivism which of course are viewed as founding elements of the secularist kemalist ideology in turkey Now, of course, somebody who very often refers and quotes poetry in speeches is President Erdogan, and he's also been known to weep on TV in interviews. And obviously, he very often gives these very emotional speeches, so he fits right into that paradigm. And you know, people listening to this uh, may, you know, be thinking of Erdogan in when we're talking about these other uh, ideas of, you know, masculinity. You know, he really is. a symbol for many people of many of these themes you know he's very much the the alpha male and he models this masculine ideal for many people and his supporters see him as this strong man active on the world stage striding modeling this this behavior so where does erdogan where does the public image of erdogan fit into this picture yes of course erdogan is the most obvious and the prime example that will come to uh, people's minds when talking about uh, all those aspects uh, that i mentioned in the article in many ways he's indeed ideal typical but of course my point is that it did not emerge with erdogan itself but rather he's a late late example that moved the inner islamist culture to a more public uh, limelight so to speak in erdogan you really have pretty much everything like the dress kind of symbolizing folksiness with this famous checkered uh, sports coats uh, that he's wearing on the on campaign stages yeah so can't imagine really, him wearing shorts to be honest yeah kind of unfashionable of course but kind of symbolizing this kind of demure and folksy type of religious politician then his speeches yeah kind of examples of this way to speak i refer to it as uh, assertive calmness in the article like extremely self assured composed and uh, still able to master all kinds of uh, situations 
Then, of course, you have the element of public weeping to emotion, pathos, and yeah, really also demonstrating this Islamist notion that you can yeah display public emotion and even be more manly with it. But of course, uh, we also have to keep in mind that those displays of emotions are very well orchestrated and you cry for very specific circumstances and, and only for them. And also this poetry, the element of poetry and uh, Erdogan as a, uh, as a poet, pretty much as a poet reciter. And uh, it's pretty much uh, forgotten today, I think. I think it was in, in, uh, in the year 98. He had a pretty popular uh, cassette recording of poetry recitals on the, on the market. And it was really pretty much up there in the sales sales figures with anyone who was big in 98, like says in Aksu or a famous artist like that. So it was really a big thing. I think it, it can still be accessed uh, on YouTube probably. And uh, yeah, of course, then the, the element of uh, public tears, shedding public tears for those very special circumstances. It kind of got more publicly renowned with uh, with Erdogan, but also the the Islamist leader of the time frame I'm looking at, uh, Nejmetin Erbakan, did very much the same thing. And of course, uh, who took it to the, the very maximum is the preaching of uh, Fethullah Gülen, who used this really emotive performances in a really uh, theatrical, extreme way. That Erdogan cassette, it's Erdogan, it's, he, it's his voice and he's speaking over music, isn't he? Yeah, and it's really symbolizing what I'm also writing about in the article. Like the music and uh, the poetry recitals are like extremely emotive and really create this uh, this Islamist pathos that I'm describing. That was Jan Marcus Vermel. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 175. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among many other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've just started publishing high-quality original on-the-ground reporting for their subscribers. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.